Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Before I introduce this episode, I want to mention that I'm co-organizing an online conference with my colleague Michael Butler. It's called Digital Worlds, a Virtual Workshop. It'll be conducted remotely on April 10th and April 11th, 2021. We're looking for papers that interrogate the way modern digital technology enhances, hampers, or alters our experience of lived worlds. If you'd like more information, visit the workshop's website, digitalworlds.wordpress.com, and that link will also be in the show notes. So it occurred to me only too late that I obviously should have had a special episode to discuss Thanksgiving. I mean, it's a holiday that's centered around food in many ways, and as often happens with food, it's a focal point to talk about a lot of things, from settler colonialism in what we now think of as the Americas, to eating animals, to family tradition, to the political fights with relatives, and the way all of those topics are warped through the lens of this pandemic in 2020. Oops, <laughs> that sounds like a good episode, but I didn't think of it. The good news, though, is that I do have an interview that is relevant to a lot of those questions, and we even mentioned Thanksgiving as an example in our conversation. I spoke with Ben Almasi because he has a new book coming out, Reparative Environmental Justice in a World of Wounds. I got an advanced copy of the text, and I recommend it highly as a thoughtful, interesting look at reparative justice for our relationship with non-humans, including other animals and entire ecosystems. It'll be available on December 15th from Lexington Books. Let me read you Ben's bio. Ben Almasi lives in Chicago, which is on the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations, and today the third largest urban American Indian community in the U.S., Ben is an associate professor of philosophy at Governor's State University, an Illinois State University in southern Chicagoland, where he teaches many different courses, including interdisciplinary ethics, environmental ethics, political theory, epistemology, and practical reasoning. His new book, as I mentioned, available from Lexington Books this December, is called Reparative Environmental Justice in a World of Wounds. And now, here's my conversation with Ben Almasi. How are you doing? Well. I'm excited about uh, this chance to talk to you and um, my uh, my project I've been working on for a while, uh, getting to a getting to a point of completion. Yeah, how long have you been working on this book? Uh, well, it was funny uh, it, because I know that many moons ago, you um, you actually I think the first time maybe we met, we were at a conference together. We were at one of the very first public philosophy network conferences. Uh, down in Atlanta, and I gave a really early version of a paper I was working on about ecological restoration and thinking about like the goals of ecological restoration, like not just in terms of certain kinds of um, biological configurations, but like the goals in terms of uh, um, a moral process. And so that was uh, like maybe six or seven years ago. And over time, I was thinking more and more about taking that idea of um, a moral reparative process and thinking about environmental ethics in those terms and thinking about how that applies to restoration, but perhaps also the way we think about climate justice or other kinds of environmental injustice, um, maybe even how we think about 
um, the way that science interacts with traditional ecological knowledge. And so about two years ago, I, I was confident enough. I had published a couple of papers on the subject, and I, I had in my mind that maybe this would make sense as a book project. Um, maybe this was one of those projects uh, where, it, where it really did make sense to, um, to take some time, um, one of those projects uh, that could breathe a little bit. So I've been working on it for about two years. Yeah, can I ask, um, and we'll see, I may uh, edit this part out from the sure. podcast, but uh, just about the process of getting a philosophical book or philosophy book, I should say, um, out in the world, uh, because that's a thing that I'm thinking about as a next step for me now that I got tenure at my university. Congratulations. Um, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's a, a load of worry off for sure that I wasn't even aware I had. Um, when you wrote your proposal, uh, you wrote the entire manuscript first, is that correct? A no, draft of it? No, I wrote a proposal and I had two sample chapters. Okay. Yeah. And were those chapters based on the articles that you had pu previously published on the topic? They were. Now, over the last couple of years, both those chapters grew a bit and changed, but the ones that I submitted as sample chapters were, uh, were pretty much based on the articles I had published. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. And yeah. did you find, cause I, you know, I've gotten very conflicting advice from different people who mm -hmm. have published books, but, uh, is have, is the fact that you had published those previously as articles, do you think that was helpful to your case? Or do you think that that was a, a mark against you that you'd sort of already made some of your most basic points? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it was definitely good for me. Uh, it gave me uh, some confidence um, that there was that there was something to expand upon there. Um, but there was some concern about having too much of the book that was uh, like pre-published. Uh, so I think the again, I'm I'm not in the publishing business, but I think if you have maybe twenty or twenty-five percent of the book that's been published, that's sort of the that's maybe like a threshold beyond which the book publishers may be a little bit concerned. Um, so I wasn't too worried because the book I'm working on has about eight chapters and only two of them had been published before. And like I said, um, when it was all said and done, those two chapters changed quite a bit anyway uh, in their final formulation. Yeah. Did um, you work carefully with the editor uh, to reformulate that? Or was that just in the process of writing the book you found yourself? going back and revising and changing I had things some, like very useful back and forth with the editor, but mostly it was just in the, the process of bringing the whole book together. Um, one of the funny things, right, is that a, a journal article needs to be relatively standalone, both to make it through the peer review process and just also for readers. Uh, but, but then when it becomes a chapter in a larger book, there are things that no longer need to be in that chapter because they repeat what you said earlier. Um, and there are things that now you want to put in. Uh, the chapter that I wrote about ecological restoration, I was really um, excited and challenged because one of the authors that I engage with about ecological restoration, a philosopher named Eric Katz, uh, had seen fit to write a response to the, to the paper I had published. And so one of the things I was able to do in the chapter version was to take his criticisms into consideration, uh, both in like an indirect way, but also a chance to like directly respond uh, to his criticisms. That's great. Yeah, I, uh, I have multiple ideas for what to do with the book project, and its relation to articles I've already published has been something uh, 
I don't know, the internet is full of a lot of very definite people that probably don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I, I appreciate no, right? the, I appreciate the firsthand recent experience. Um, I had a really good conversation. You know, you were asking about the process of um, when you when you seek a publisher, uh, what point in your writing process for a book might you look for a like a publishing partner? And I had a really good conversation with someone, and he really helped me clarify for me anyway uh, um, the decision. And he said, you know, I'm going to wait until I finish writing the whole book I'm working on um, until I seek out a publisher because. I've got a clear picture in my mind of what I want it to be, he said, and I don't necessarily want to take notes uh, in the writing process. You know, I, I want to write the piece and then I want to find the right publisher for it. And uh, that was really clarifying to hear because when I was working on this project about uh, reparative justice in the environment, I was at a point where I was happy for feedback earlier in the process and I was, I was looking to uh, invite somebody in. Um, and so I thought that was actually a good way of thinking about it, which is, do you have a project that you just want to be able to, to fully articulate before, before you get any kind of feedback, before you look for a publisher, or are you actually looking for somebody to, um, to give their perspective earlier in the process and actually take that perspective, however like small or vast it might be in the writing process? Sure. Yeah. And I bet there's probably some psychological, uh, aspects too with yeah. how confident you are to go out you know like are you the kind of person who's open or do you want to make sure you have a, you could answer any question anyone might ask before you start yeah you know asking those sorts of questions um yeah i'm not sure where i fall on that like i say i, I might bother you more about this <laughs> if i emailed some future yeah, point sure. but um so this book which i found really fascinating um it hits some major themes that i think we should maybe get out of the way for listeners who might not be as familiar with this sort of area of literature. So one thing that you talk about um, is reparative justice, particularly Margaret Urban Walker's concept of that. Right. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and what that means just in a general sense? Yeah, absolutely. So especially for those of us who've been teaching philosophy or taking philosophy courses, justice is a pretty central concept. But oftentimes we think about justice in like pretty ideal terms. Uh, and when we think about violations of justice, um, the question of what to do next, maybe we don't get that as much attention. Um, and when we do, like what to do like after someone wrongs someone else, uh, what, to, what to do after we commit an injustice or we experience one, uh, a lot of times the presumption is that the response needs to be some kind of punishment, so like a retributive response, or maybe some kind of like restitution, right? Like compensating people for the, well, for the harms that they've experienced. So maybe some kind of like uh, compensatory or restitutive justice. Uh, but I was really taken by uh, thinking about the response to injustice, the aftermath of wrongdoing in reparative terms. Uh, and so really thinking that uh, what needs to be repaired is the relationship that's been strained or damaged uh, or maybe even destroyed uh, by the wrongdoing in question. And so, uh, like, I, like, like you said, Ian, I was really moved by Margaret Urban Walker's account of moral repair and reparative justice, where you're thinking that what needs to happen, this reparative process is guided by, um, guided by 
repairing the relationship between uh, those who've experienced wrongdoing uh, and those who have perpetrated it. But then also, in addition to like the perpetrators and the victims of injustice, there's also the rest of their community, uh, third-party community members who are involved in that reparative process as well. And I was asking myself, um, how can we bring that way of thinking about the aftermath of wrongdoing, thinking about repairing relationships that have been strained or damaged by what we've done to each other? How can we bring that into thinking about our relationships that are ecologically significant, uh, our relationships with other people, absolutely, but also with other animals, with ecosystems, with other members of the biotic community? Yeah, so that's interesting because uh, Walker herself focused almost exclusively or maybe exclusively on human to human, you know, person to person sorts of that's right. relationships that have been damaged. So what sorts of relationships are you thinking about? Like what's, what sorts of relationships do we have with ecosystems such that they need to be repaired? Well, that's a fine question. Uh, and for me, the challenge has really been to think about how far we can extend the idea of reparative justice. So I'm excited about extending that idea to lots of different ecologically significant relationships. But part, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is wrestle with the challenges of doing that. And if some people want to get off the train uh, before I do, uh, I'm open to that. Uh, maybe you'll decide that extending this, say, to um, an ecosystem uh, just isn't going to work, but maybe you're open to extending it to, uh, say, um, non-human animals. Uh, or maybe you're open to extending it to um, future people, uh, but maybe not to... Uh, um, to maybe not to existing animals. I mean, I'd like to talk about each of those, actually. So let's start with uh, what kind of relationships do uh, people yes. have or could people have with ecosystems? Yes, good. So part of what I find like really powerful about uh, relational approaches to ethics, specifically the like, care ethics approaches that come out of different uh, feminist traditions, uh, is that relationships matter, but we aren't trying to find the one core paradigmatic relationship that guides us into thinking about uh, ethics. So that means that um, the different kinds of relationships that we have to other people, but also to non-human entities, those relationships are going to be treated differently because the nature of the relationship is different. The ethical dimensions and how to go about repairing those relationships will sometimes be different because the nature of the relationship is different as well. But for ecologically significant relationships, I'm going to start with being ecologically connected. Uh, I was kind of struck by this interesting moment uh, where Martin Luther King seems to come together with Aldo Leopold. Uh, and King talks about um, all of us being uh, woven together in this sort of single garment of history. And um, Aldo Leopold talks about us as being members of a common biotic community. Um, so one way in which we are in relation to other entities is we're ecologically in relation to them. Like our lives are bound up with them as they are bound up with other people. Um, and so we start to unpack what does it mean to have your life like bound up with um, 
other people, with other animals, uh, with plants and systems? And then what are some of the ethically significant implications of that? So when it comes to humans and ecosystems, is you're talking about care ethics. Is it a relationship, do you think, of care, maybe, maybe mutual care? Um, mm -hmm. that is the thing that's being harmed when, you know, in current sort of exploitative, uh, environmental practices, or is there, um, you know, are there other sort of aspects to that relationship? So like some people have very deep relationships with the ecosystem in which they live. I mean, you mentioned Aldo Leopold and he not only, uh, argued for being careful and taking care of ecosystems and being mindful as we do that. So, you know, very famously realizing that eliminating wolves as a predator wasn't good for the ecosystem um or apparently even good for the hunters right yeah yeah exactly uh but also he loved being outdoors you know he loved mm -hmm. being outside so maybe there's other aspects of that relationship as well yeah that's a great that's a great point i was thinking and we'll talk about ecosystems but i was thinking about an analogy about about being in in relation with non-human animals uh so some people are animal lovers like they they like having close relationships with animals whether that's pets or maybe animals that are constantly coming into their gardens or their backyards um but there are people who have that kind of uh personal relationship with animals and maybe some of us are not animal people <laughs> um that's not the kind of relationship we have uh with with dogs or cats or or pigs uh or or red-tailed hawks um but even if you're not an animal person, uh, you are still in relation to other animals. Um, your life is bound up with other animals. My life is bound up with other animals. Um, that's certainly true if I eat them. Uh, but even if I'm a vegetarian, um, animals are affecting my the ecosystem that I'm a part of in all kinds of ways. And of course, I'm affecting the ecosystem that they're a part of as well. So I am thinking about those. Um, personal, uh, closer relationships that we have, but, uh, but not just those kinds of uh, closer relationships. There are, of course, ways in which our lives are deeply impacted by other people, even if those other people live thousands of miles away from us. And there are people who are going to be deeply impacted by the things that you and I are doing, who don't even live yet, uh, who will live um, decades and centuries from now. And yet, um, we are in relation with them, I suggest, uh, because the things that we're doing have a significant impact on on their lives. And that can be positive and it can be also be negative. Part of what's exciting about thinking about reparative justice is, of course, you are attending to injustice and acknowledging uh, injustice that we've perpetrated is a, is a significant part of that, uh, making apology um, and looking to make amends. Um, so it's not about moving on. That being said, part of what's exciting about reparative justice is that it is, it is a constructive process. Um, we don't merely stay in our guilt and shame, um, uh, but we, we move forward, not move forward in a kind of, um, blithely, uh, progressive way where we just try to make tomorrow better than yesterday. Right. Um, the, the I want to look forward and not look backward. Yeah, right. That, not that. Usually the person who's benefiting from the situation says. Yes, let's just um, put it all behind us. Yeah. So we're not doing that. Um, but uh, what's exciting about reparative justice is the idea of a process, a process by which we can 
uh, repair the conditions of these relationships. And part of what I find powerful about Margaret Urban Walker's approach, although it does produce some really good challenges when you extend it uh, environmentally, is that that process for her is really grounded in the experiences and subjectivities of those who have experienced the wrongdoing. Uh, so it's guided by uh, victim subjectivity. Uh, and I find that really clarifying um, in terms of um, what kinds of amends are owed, in terms of when is forgiveness and trust uh, rebuilt, uh, in terms of what needs to be done to repair um, the moral conditions that have been uh, destroyed or degraded. Okay. And so, you know, you're mentioning uh, non-human animals. Uh, what's your opinion about the kind of relationship that we ought to have with them? So is a relationship of us consuming them and very infrequently the other way, the other direction happening, uh, can that be a productive health? Like, is there a way to make that relationship one that is respectful, one that is beneficial, you know, a good relationship? Presumably, that's not the case with our current, you know, industrial livestock farming and production yeah, sorts of technologies. But is there one that would be? Or do you think that inherently um, consumption is uh, sort of too exploitative and it itself would be the thing we'd need to make amends for? Yeah, I mean, that is a that's a challenging question. So uh, in addition to um, Margaret Urban Walker's approach to reparative justice, I keep coming back to uh, a net buyer on trust and to um, uh, uh, an ecologist uh, named Robin Kimmerer. Uh, Robin Kimmerer writes about ecological restoration. She writes about traditional ecological knowledge. Uh, and one point that she makes is the need for gratitude, uh, the need for gratitude in our, in our relationship to the non-human world. And so I don't know that it's about abolition, right? I don't know that it's about uh, avoiding um, avoiding eating other creatures, um, but maybe it's about um, showing respect. It's about having gratitude. Certainly, I think that we need to eat some other members of the biotic community, and I, I can get along just fine without eating the other animals uh, in my biotic community. I can get along just fine being a vegetarian. Um, I hope that I have enough epistemic humility that um, I'm really not in a position to say that everybody should be a vegetarian, that there's never a case in which someone's justified in eating other animals. Uh, people are in many different circumstances than I am. Most people don't live in uh, the Great Lakes, right? People live all around the world in all kinds of different kinds of contexts. So um, some people may need to eat other animals because of the, the um, ecosystems that they live in. Um, and if they can do that in a respectful way, um, perhaps that's that's what's important. Hmm. One of yeah, the things I've so, been realizing as I've been working on this project is I'm a lot less clear about uh, like what our relationships ought to be, ideally speaking, and I'm a, a bit clearer about um, trying to make them better, <laughs> trying to mm -hmm. make them more morally adequate than they were before. Yeah, well, that uh, that sort of not knowing the answer in advance of what a just situation would look like or not spending a ton of time trying to work out the exact perfect relationship, but rather thinking about what we can do to improve the situation we're in now is also pretty central to your book. Um, you know, you're talking a lot about this idea about non-ideal 
justice, right? Non-ideal yeah. moral repair. Um, that's an ongoing conversation inside philosophy. Can you maybe talk a little right. bit about non-ideal theory versus ideal theory? What does that mean? And why are you interested in thinking non-ideally? Yeah, well, I think a lot of folks find real value in ideal theorizing, trying to get a really good sense of what success would look like, right? Whether that's in terms of knowledge, whether it's in terms of justice, right? So you start with a clear picture of like success, right? Like what would a just society look like? Uh, and then having like really carved out for yourself uh, a very clear ideal conception of justice, then you turn to the real world and, and try to use your ideal conception of justice to guide you. Uh, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't see the appeal. Uh, I've definitely, I've definitely uh, been moved by ideal theorizing in my life. Um, but, of course, the problem is, is what you put aside, right? I, I think about the analogy with the ideal gas law. What makes the ideal gas law ideal is the various um, real-world um, parameters that you are putting aside. And you're doing that intentionally. You're doing that honestly. You're not trying to fool anyone when you're using the ideal gas law. But of course, you can't forget about all of those idealizations that you made uh, when you turn back to the real world uh, and look to, um, look to, to live your life. And so when it comes to philosophy, right now, it's less, for me, it's, uh, it's less about uh, dissatisfaction with ideal theory. And for me, it's, it's more about the excitement um, of, of what non-ideal theorizing allows us to do. Uh, so, for example, when we think about climate justice, right, it's really valuable to ask like, what each of us ought to be doing and what different nations ought to be doing. But we can't end the conversation there because even if there's considerable disagreement about the appropriate greenhouse gas emissions for each individual person, for each of the different countries of the world, even if there's significant disagreement on that, there's pretty widespread agreement that we are not meeting those standards, uh, that, that we're failing each other. Uh, and that we're we're failing uh, future generations, and so what non-ideal theorizing allows us to do is to ask that that next question, that second question, which is, okay, when and if we're we're we've gotten things wrong, when and if we're hurting each other, we're wronging each other, um, what then? Um, and so, for example, uh, I find a lot of direction in. Um, work from Charles Mills in political philosophy and in critical race theory, where Mills says, you know, I just can't limit myself to ideal theorizing because I want to be able to make some useful contribution into thinking more clearly about the real world. And if I want to think about the real world, I have to attend to the real injustices, the real systems of oppression, uh, Mills would say. Um, and ideal theorizing doesn't often allow me to do that. And I find something similar going on when we think about environmental relationships and when we think about environmental ethics, uh, which is we have to allow ourselves and encourage our students to think about what we do like after, uh, after um, injustice, um, because 
when it comes to environmental relationships, whether it's with future people, whether it's to the other peoples who live around the world today, whether it's to other animals, we have so many relationships that are morally strained. Um, so asking what to do then is a pretty relevant question. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I obviously, as you're, as you're suggesting, there's some controversy about this, but yeah. I, I agree that it's important to have a sense of the direction that you're going toward, right? Some sort of goal, but spending all of your time working out exactly what that would look like when there are things happening right now uh, seems, at least for me, to be not a great use of my time. You know, like if, if, if you and I are good friends and it's clear that I am hurting you a lot through some action or inaction that I'm doing, uh, I don't know that it's the most productive order of operations to think about, well, I need to, under I need to think very carefully about in an ideal world, how often we'll talk to each other and what that will look like before I stop doing the thing that I'm doing that's hurting you. You know, maybe, maybe we should think about how I can stop and how I can make amends and then we'll build whatever that future is. So I have a, enough of a direction to get going, you know? Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, part of the other challenge, right, is where does history fit into I ideal theor theorizing? Right. Yeah, it, it's a bit like the old um, challenge for virtue ethics. Um, in virtue ethics, you know, we're looking for good role models. We're looking for virtuous people to model our lives after. Uh, and a nice challenge is, well, when you're looking for a role model, should you look for someone who has made mistakes in their life? Or should you look for someone who's always made the right choice? Uh, and it seems like the better role model is the one who always does the right thing. But of course, I need a role model who can, <laughs> who can help me figure out what to do when I err, because I do. Right. You don't want directions on how to get somewhere that start with, well, you shouldn't start from where you are right now. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's also a case of historical contingency and our relationships on these profound issues that you're talking about being so bad that it might not be possible for us to know what develops in the future. Like if you think about mitigating yeah. climate change, you know, and addressing the, what we've done to the climate, there are open questions about what the future will look like under any sorts of regimen of action. Even if we, you know, do everything that is recommended to us now by scientists, what will it look like in 10, 20, 50 years? Uh, you know, there's some open questions about that. And then, of course, then that will mean we'll need to do different things then and face the challenges as they arise. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, I, I find this to be a really exciting, uh, but really <laughs> quite significant challenge, which is how to make the process itself dynamic, right? How to make the process itself um, something that can um, be adjusted um, and can um, be fixed as we, as we learn new things. Um, if we're trying to repair our relationship with future people, people who don't yet exist, um, part of that needs to be responsive to what those people um, actually want, what they actually need, how they actually feel about the things that we've done to them. And of course, there's something paradoxical about um, how am I supposed to make amends um, guided by the uh, needs of those who don't exist yet. Um, now, I think that's a fun paradox. Uh, I think that's a, a nice, interesting, conceptual and practical challenge. And I think part of how we get at it is, okay, well, how can the reparative process, um, how can the reparative process be open to revision? Um, how can the reparative process itself allow for places where it's going to be adjusted 
um, and fixed and improved along the way. Yeah. So that was the third kind of relationship that you talk about in the book that I think is interesting for people that aren't familiar with this uh, kind of discourse. So there's a lot of literature in environmental philosophy and other places about thinking about what we owe to future generations, if anything, mm -hmm. and what it would mean to owe something to future generations. Um, and it's one of those questions that, at least when I'm teaching, I find that when I first present it to students, they don't see that they don't really feel like there is a problem, mm -hmm, right? Like maybe sure. there's some there's some some minor technical questions, like we don't know in the future uh, some details about what future lives will be like, and so maybe there's a question about you know what they would want us to do now if they could look back and let us know, but it's a minor question. Uh, whereas philosophers see it as quite a significant. Uh, conundrum, right? A paradox, as you're saying. And I can motivate my students to start seeing it as a really hard question. Mm -hmm. um, although I don't know if I'm doing a service to them yeah. when I do that, right? Exactly. If I can, if, you know, there's, there are times uh, when philosophers are confused about something and no one else is, that I think it's because we are thinking about it in an interesting and productive way. And there's other times that I think that when we get confused about something that no one else is confused by, it's because we have you know, the wrong end of the stick, as Wittgenstein would probably argue. Well, Ian, like, that's a great attitude of, uh, that's good attitude of humility, right? If you're admitting, I am a philosopher, but I have enough humility to know that philosophers have our own uh, things that we're obsessed with. It makes me think about uh, the problem of induction, which has definitely kept me up uh, at night over as a, as a philosophy student and as a graduate student and as a, as a, uh, even as a philosophy professor, but I'm not sure if I really want to convince my students that they should take the problem of induction as seriously as <laughs> I have. Um, and we're, we're, you and I are talking about what sometimes is called the non-identity problem for climate justice, right? Um, so these yeah, can you explain a little bit about what this problem is about future? Yeah, I can talk. A, I can talk a bit about it. So the concern, right, is that it sure seems like the things that we're doing now and the things that people have done for several decades now uh, are going to have significant impacts on, um, on, on the world in the future. That's certainly true uh, atmospherically uh, as far as climate change, but of course it's true in other ways too with um, resource consumption and um, ecological degradation. Uh, but as philosophers have pointed out, um, the things that we're doing now uh, will change the future. That's that's exactly what we're concerned about. But of course, that means in some very real sense, that means that different future people will come into existence. Uh, people will be born who wouldn't have otherwise been born. That can seem a little bit um, highfalutin, but I think it's useful just to think about um, climate refugees and migration that happens um, because of um, environmental destruction people who have to leave their homes and move to different parts of the world because of the things that human beings have done to ecosystems. So those people move around the world as so many people do. Uh, they meet different people that they wouldn't have met if they hadn't, uh, they hadn't moved around the world, if they hadn't migrated. Uh, they have different children than they would have otherwise had. Um, yeah, I'm enough of a, I'm enough of a analytic philosopher that I've been concerned about the non-identity problem, but I also think there are some really useful ways of thinking about um, intergenerational ethics that don't quite get so hung up on this problem. Um, so, for example, there's a philosopher named Edith Brown Weiss who talks about planetary rights, uh, and she 
talks about planetary rights in terms of um, the rights of, of access to like fair share of, of the planetary resources that different generations would have. And I don't know that I'm like fully on board with this way of thinking about um, people's relationship to the planet, but of course, but the, but, um, but her point is that these are group rights, right? These are rights that generations have. Uh, and even if we don't know which individuals will come into existence in the future, even if our actions are changing which individuals come into existence in the future, uh, if we think about future people in terms of groups, then uh, that avoids some of the metaphysical paradoxes that we got hung up on. Another uh, way of thinking about intergenerational relationality that I find really powerful uh, comes from a philosopher I mentioned before, Annette Beyer, who uh, writes about trust. She writes about relationships. And she has this paper from the early 80s uh, called The Rights of Past and Future Persons, um, where Beyer is arguing that we have a kind of cross-generational community. And when we think about our obligations to people who live at a different time than us, we're not just talking about future people, but we're also talking about our responsibilities to past people as well. Um, part of our obligation um, is to do right by those who came before us, uh, as well as uh, to do right to those who come after. And so I actually find that really interesting and powerful that the relationship we're talking about here is not just our relationship to people who don't exist yet, to future people. It's also our relationship to people who once existed in the past. Uh, and that complicates the cross-generational community in some good ways. Yeah. So one way that um, we can think about our responsibilities through time, from the past to now to the future, um, that you address in your book is this idea of traditional ecological knowledge. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I saw that you had a blurb by Kyle Powis White on your book, uh, who I love. I mean, he was my dissertation advisor, so I think he's pretty great. So you're thinking through. Was, uh, I, I, uh, I, I can't agree with you more on that one. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe I can convince him to being on the podcast at some point. But <laughs> you, you were uh, so you're thinking about this idea of traditional ecological knowledge. So the knowledge that um, traditional communities that have been in place for a long, long time, mm -hmm. indigenous communities have about you know, that have built up over millennia. Uh, sometimes about the place in which they live. So what is there to say about that in environmental terms? Because I think if when you first hear it, maybe the most obvious reaction, at least for, you know, settler colonialist people, uh, is to think that it's they could be useful, right? They might know mm. something like what you can do with some kind of plant or yeah. something about seasons that we could use as we're trying to be better uh, in place. But is there anything else to think about with TEK than that? Yeah, great question. Uh... There are, uh, Ian, there are just so many ways in which we do each other wrong as knowers. There are just so many ways in which we don't give each other the proper respect and trust and credibility with regard to the things that we uh, think and believe and know and experience. Um, and so part of what I'm doing in this book is thinking about how these many different varieties of epistemic injustice um, that folks have been writing about, especially in the last uh, 10 or 25 years, um, how they, they all can be seen um, in the ways that um, scientists and other um, 
other uh, non-Indigenous uh, communities um, relate to traditional ecological knowledge. Uh, so like one way that you can disrespect someone, uh, one way that you can wrong someone epistemically is just not to recognize that they know anything of value at all. And certainly um, settler colonialists have had that attitude towards ind indigenous people around the world um, uh, for, for a long time and continuing today. Uh, and of course, then there's that period of time uh, where there's enough respect or perhaps at least enough recognition um, that um, outsiders sort of realize that you do know what you're talking about. Uh, but of course, as you were mentioning before, Ian, but see this in a completely uh, extractive, uh, exploitative uh, kind of way. So what can I do with the knowledge that you and your community have developed? Um, and um, Ian, you mentioned before, uh, philosopher um, Kyle White, he writes about um, the, the relationship between scientific and traditional ecological knowledge in a variety of ways. And he offers us this distinction uh, between seeing the supplemental value of traditional ecological knowledge uh, and then seeing the governance value of traditional ecological knowledge. So um, I might be like so uh, hermeneutically ignorant that I just do not recognize the value of what you and your people are doing at all, right? I just, I don't get it at all. Uh, I see you engaged in these practices. And because I just do not understand what you're doing, I'm not willing to understand what you're doing. I don't grant uh, you and your people the status of true knowers. And so I think that what you're doing is superstitious. I think that what you're doing is confused or nonsensical. I don't yeah. realize what you're doing. And if people are interested in thinking about like that sort of stage you know, before you go on, yeah. I would suggest uh, the work of Christy Dotson and thinking about epistemic silencing or epistemic smothering where uh, we just don't recognize people as knowers enough for them to participate in a conversation. Absolutely. And so then it becomes perfectly rational for those people not even to try to explain it to us. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and, and then uh, maybe I... I start to appreciate that there is something to what you're doing, but I still only see it in terms of how it can benefit me. And this is what uh, Kyle White calls the, the recognizing the supplemental value of traditional ecological knowledge. So maybe I pepper it into um, my way of seeing the world, but I still don't really appreciate what, uh, what he calls the governance value. I'm, I'm still not really recognizing um, traditional knowers as knowers. I'm just thinking about them as sources of information that I might find useful. Um, but if I, if I push myself, right, if I challenge my, my ignorance and I challenge the, um, the constructed ignorance that I've built for myself and that's been built for me, then of course, this knowledge isn't just knowledge that's useful for what I can do with it, but this is knowledge that people are building into their lives and have done so um, for for a long time, uh, and so how is uh, how can we respect each other's knowledge? Not just in terms of um, how we might how we might make use of it, how we might extract it from other people, but how can we respect each other's knowledge in terms of how it's actually built into um, our worldviews, built into the way we live our lives? And honestly, um, 
I think when it comes to traditional ecological knowledge and like food and food knowledge, um, it can be perhaps easier to appreciate that, right? To say like, oh yes, like this knowledge is um, important, not just in terms of uh, how um, like corporations could extract it and use it to improve their products, but this is knowledge that people are building their lives around. Um, and, um, you know, there's a, there's a challenge when we talk about traditional ecological knowledge, the challenge to assume that it's stagnant, right? That because it's mm -hmm. traditional, because it has a long history and it's rooted in a place, sort of this assumption that it's not updated, it doesn't need to be updated, that, it, that, it, that it's outmoded. Um, but of course, right, or, be, or some, something that belongs, uh, you know, in a museum right, or something like that. Right. Nothing could be further from the truth, but it feeds into this idea that if there ever was this knowledge, that it was in the past. Um, Ian, you've been using this concept of settler colonialism, um, and I, I, I find it really valuable too. This idea, not just that you come and settle in a new place, but you do it in this colonizing way um, where you bring with you all of your assumptions, all of your practices. And you oppress and push out and ignore all of the existing um, practices and ways of life that people and other animals were already doing in those places. And settler colonialism, like uh, <laughs> settler colonialism, um, can be a self fulfilling prophecy for itself, right? So self, uh, so settler colonialism convinces itself that there was no knowledge here. And right. if it's sufficiently successful in crowding that out of people's um, recognition, um, then then um, you'll just never know, right? Um, because the world is built for you so that you don't realize it. Um, so part of what's exciting is the recognition that traditional ecological knowledge, like all knowledge systems, is dynamic, that it's responsive to new information especially in um, ecological contexts, right? Especially when the world changes. And so ecological knowledge changes with it. Yeah, and, you know, you're mentioning uh, in that answer, talking about how we can do things, right? And throughout this entire book, um, you're taking very seriously not just these I mean, to me, interesting theoretical questions, but also like, what, what does that mean? Right? So if, if you're right, so what, which is the way that I usually phrase it when I'm explaining philosophy to students, right? Sure. Uh, if, if that's true, so what? Um, and you're taking that very seriously in this book, thinking about practical sorts of questions that arise out of that policy kinds of questions that arise about that. Um, so I'm interested in uh, why you're doing that, which is a little unusual in a philosophy book, but maybe let me ask you first, um, yeah, so, so what, right? <laughs> In the friendliest way to ask so what someone, yeah. uh, you know, if it's the case that uh, there is a possibility, there is such a thing as moral repair and restorative justice, and that that's a way that we can think about um, justice, the way we can think about addressing harms, um, and that that framework can be extended to environmental sorts of communities, right? To non-human relationships and not human, non-human communities. Um, what implications does that have for how we might move forward or what we might do differently? Yeah, well, for me, uh, one of the things that's good about it is that 
it allows us to recognize or maybe better appreciate the value of things that people are already doing. Um, so maybe it allows us to see, for example, uh, ecological restoration projects in a slightly different light to see what they're doing, to see um, what they are succeeding at achieving. Um, and, and that can be celebratory. And it also can sometimes be critical, say like, oh, well, this is a reason to do restoration differently. Um, it, maybe it allows us to see uh, animal rehabilitation in a different light, right? To see like what is happening, for example, in an animal sanctuary. How is this a site of um, interspecies repair? Uh, so I think part of what's exciting is um, it allows us to better appreciate the reparative actions that people are already doing. Um, and then maybe it also allows us to, well, hmm. I was going to launch into an answer which presumed a certain kind of perspective. Um, because oftentimes when I think about my relationship to environmental repair, I often think about it in terms of what perpetrators of environmental wrongdoing ought to do. Because generally speaking, I think about myself in that category. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of us, I mean, if we're living in a world, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the kind of society where people are going to buy your new book, which I hope everybody does is listening to this uh, and are listening to podcasts, they at least live in a world that's enmeshed in yeah. environmental harm. Yeah. Um, and of course, many people in the world uh, fall into both categories, right? Many people in the world um, are victims of uh, environmental wrongdoing, as well as bound up and complicit with the perpetration of environmental wrongdoing. Um, that being said, right, when I answer the question of like, what does this conceptualization help us do? I don't want to presume that the us, right, the us of what does this conceptualization, conceptualization help us do? Um, that us includes those of us who need to reckon with our perpetration of environmental wrongdoing, but it also includes uh, those of us who have been the victims of environmental injustice. Um, and so when I ask, like, what can this conceptualization do for us? Uh, I hope that in part, it allows those of us who have been and continue to perpetrate environmental wrongdoing, it allows us to see what we're doing in a clearer light. And it allows us like a constructive role into how we can change, um, not merely stopping doing the uh, questionable activities we've been engaged in, but what kinds of amends we might make, what kinds of ameliorative activities we might engage in. And I should hope for myself and maybe for other fo folks who are thinking about these things, that we don't presumptively take the perspective of perpetrators of environmental justice as the one that answers this question, right? It's important, right? Uh, but of course, part of the irony would be, once again, obscuring the significance of those who have uh, experienced the injustice in question. And so it's equally important to ask, how can this framework, how can this way of thinking about the aftermath of environmental wrongdoing, how can that be useful for victims of environmental wrongdoing? Right. Yeah. You know, there's a, a tendency when you've been in sort of a epistemically privileged and also just politically having more power uh, position to others 
even when you're then trying to fix everything to come to them and say, hey, listen, we, f- we worked it all out. We figured out what we're going to do from now on. So this is the new regime and this one's way better. You're welcome. Yeah. So um, when we think about environmental racism, for example, questions of distributive justice, right, of who gets the burdens of um, modern society and who gets the benefits, uh, questions of distributive justice are really important. Um, but that can't be the full extent of how we respond to environmental racism. So folks like uh, Kyle White, who we were talking about before, uh, or Deborah McGregor, and other indigenous scholars have suggested that like an important part of responding to environmental racism isn't just the distributive question, but it's also who gets to participate, right? Um, who's involved in governance practices? Who's involved in decision-making? And not just who gets to participate, but what are the values that people are allowed or denied to bring with them into the, um, into the decision-making process? Um, I think that's a really important insight when it comes to like environmental injustice. And it's something that aligns, I think, with this idea from Margaret Walker that reparative justice needs to be guided by the subjectivities, not the, not the subjectivities of those who have done the wrong, but the subjectivities of those who have been done wrong, that's the subjectivity that needs to be emphasized. Uh, And if that's the case, then that's another reason why uh, participatory justice and recognition justice uh, have to be part of the the story, Um, not only improving distributions of burdens and benefits, but in terms of which values guide us. Right. I mean, there there would be a big difference uh, substantively you know, to get at this kind of governance idea, if the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commissions mm. that happened had been proposed, carried out, and implemented by the de Klerk government, the de Klerk apartheid government, uh, you know, if, if it had been white South Africans yeah. still in power who had decided that they were going to do a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that's, that's a very different sort of animal, even if substantively it's the same thing. Yeah, and we can um, imagine like the sham version of that, but even if it was a good faith version, it still right. would have been quite different. Yeah, even if they were doing it in full good faith, it would yeah. it would still be yeah. a, a more questionable enterprise. But um, an issue with the kinds of topics that you're talking about in your book is there's an extent to which some of these non-human uh, others in our relationships, be they non-human animals, um, certainly things like ecosystems, like a river mm-hmm. estuary system, um, thinking of them as victims or as things that need to be cared for as moral patients seems maybe an easier bridge than thinking of them as moral agents, as things that ought to be included participatively, right? To have a participatory kind of justice towards uh, non-humans is a little bit trickier. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it is tricky. I agree. It's tricky. Um, So part of my answer is that in so many of these contexts, there are human victims involved as well. Uh, So even as we like wrestle with the challenge of how to be responsive, to the subjectivity of the non-human victims, which is really important. Let's not forget about the human victims who are still a part of that <laughs> as well, right? There's sort of this tendency that when we finally allow ourselves to talk about animal ethics, or we finally allow ourselves to talk about like um, the biotic community, that then we like forget about uh, marginalized people um, as though they're not still part of the biotic community. So mm-hmm. that being said, um, I I uh, I find this to be a great challenge, um, but I come from a social epistemology and philosophy of science background, so 
I'm uh, inevitably going to see it as a really fun and exciting social epistemological challenge. Uh, <laughs> so you could sort of frame it in like a like a meta ethics way, right? And say like, gosh, what does it even mean to to call these entities victims of wrongdoing? And that's a totally good question. Um, but you, of course, you could frame it as an epistemic question, which is like, how can we know, right? Uh, how can we know what they need? How can we know uh, when they forgive us? How, how can we know uh, when we've done enough to repair uh, our relationship with them? Um, and both of those questions are totally important. Uh, but I but I keep coming back to the epistemic one, maybe because I find the epistemic one like uh, a fun challenge, right? Uh, right? Because then it's the same kind of challenge about um, about about how do you know um, from other folks as well, right? It raises really important, interesting and important questions about speaking for others, uh, about um, accessing uh, standpoints um, that you yourself don't occupy. Uh, those are great challenges and there should be like great warnings for us when we like blunder into a world um, that we're not familiar with and we think we know what's, what's going on. Um, but they're challenges. They're challenges that folks have been wrestling with, right? How can you have a productive um, relationship across difference? Uh, so if we're thinking, for example, about repairing interspecies relationships, I'm really fascinated from the perspective of those who have been working with animals, um, working with animals who have been the victims of exploitation and abuse, um, because those people have much closer and richer uh, relationships with the animals in question than I do. And it's fascinating to, um, to read and to listen to what those people um, have seen, right, about how the reparative process works uh, when they've um, been working with um, animals who need our care. Um, not because the caretaker in that question is the victim whose subjectivity should be emphasized, right? Right. We can't substitute um, in that case, just in the same way that if I'm interested in like repairing um, an ecosystem, if I'm interested in uh, like a farm here in northern Illinois that we're restoring to a prairie or a savanna or even like a wetland, the restoration technician isn't the victim of the environmental degradation, uh, but um, they have a closeness. They have a relationship to the land that um, those of us who maybe aren't doing that work um, don't have access to. Uh, so part of what we can do, right, if it's an epistemic question, if it's like, how can we know whether we're doing this in the right kind of way? Uh, that's an epistemic question that's not easy, uh, but it's absolutely one that I'm really interested in. And not in like a skeptical way, uh, but in a way, uh, to, in a way where we can try to work on it where we learn from how people have already been doing it. Right. I mean, knowing that it's hard, uh, but that it's something that we ought to work on is sort of the, the crux of thinking about ideal theory, right? That it's, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're not saying that this book has solved every possible issue that will arise, but if it can launch us in a particular direction and have certain important guides you know, to direct our actions, some th important considerations to be mindful of, that the, dyna the dynamic situation will hopefully improve and change in a way that will require, uh, you know, new thought. 
and you know, so I so I guess I guess I'm saying I look forward to your second book after everybody has taken on board all the advice from your first book, and you have to address these, uh, you know, the new questions that arise. I'm looking forward to that that challenge as well. But we were talking before about this idea that traditional ecological knowledge is in the past, right? Um, and it's it's such a it's such a profound um, realization for those of us who. Um, don't have access to, to traditional ecological knowledge to realize our ignorance, right? To realize that we've been presuming that something uh, is a certain way um, and we've been wrong about it, right? Um, and not only have we been wrong about it, but uh, ironically, right, um, we have been complicit in the uh, styming of that traditional ecological knowledge. So if it's something... Uh, dead and buried and just in the past, uh, then we think about it maybe just in terms of remembrance or apology. But if it's a dynamic thing, right? If it's a true uh, knowledge system, if it's true a true a true ecological knowledge system that's responsive to uh, the natural world, then um, of course that ecological knowledge system has to be allowed to breathe. It has to be allowed to to live and to gather new information. And so when we realize that we are complicit with um, governance practices that don't allow indigenous people to keep their traditional ecological knowledge alive, um, and by which I mean not only that the um, historical knowledge is being suppressed, but that the growing and dynamic knowledge is, is also not being allowed to um, be carried out, then we realize, oh, this isn't just a historical injustice. This is a continuing epistemic injustice um, that I have some obligation to to um, uh, to end to to ameliorate. Right. Yeah. It's a lot easier to be able to say, "Well, that was too bad." I mean, isn't it so sad? Mm. And there's a lot of sort of erasure that happens, particularly you know we're talking about Kyle's work with um, Native American peoples, where we talk even when now many people will, I, I'd like to think most people will admit that there were terrible things that happened in the past towards indigenous communities in the Americas, that doesn't mean, you know, you're ignoring what's still going on now, right? Um, yeah. My, uh, you know, I, living here in Texas, my uh, children's textbook uh, talking about Thanksgiving, which I uh, acknowledges, which I think is probably fairly new here in the state of Texas, the problems that have happened with uh, Native Americans, or that happened at the time with Native Americans and the sort of complicated relationship um, historically of Americans with Indigenous Americans. Um, but phrases it in such a way that you could read that and think that there aren't any now, that that's, you know, that you're like lamenting the loss of a species of animal or something rather than uh, ongoing current communities, current people uh, that, you know, things aren't great right here in the valley where we, where we live uh, with the uh, non-treated tribes that are living here in and are from here in the valley, uh, you know, as we are continuing to harm them through various practices like building a border wall right through their territory, uh, we talk about, you know, uh, something from the 1700s or the 1600s. So I live in Chicago, and um, there's a region that Chicago is a part of is sometimes called the Chicago Wilderness. Um, kind of in a little bit of a cheeky way, but in a way that acknowledges that there is this significant uh, ecological uh, space that stretches from uh, like southeastern Wisconsin all through uh, northern Illinois and then into Indiana and Michigan. Um, and part of part of my book is about 
um, Chicago wilderness, and it's about um, ecological restoration practices here in what's sometimes called the Chicago wilderness. And I think about this challenge because um, people who engage in uh, restoration here uh, realize the value of fire. They realize the value that uh, prescribed burns and controlled burns have in uh, managing ecosystems, and not not only uh, something that has been done recently uh, after a 20th century in which fire suppression was the norm, uh, but there's a widespread recognition among restorationists that fire has been used for centuries uh, by the peoples who have lived here, um, that fire is something that Potawatomi people, for example, have used across the prairie for centuries. And that's, a, that's a, um, in, an important insight that contemporary restorationists take uh, from traditional ecological knowledge from our region. And yet, and yet there often can also be the temptation to see that as a purely historical thing, right? To, to ignore or perhaps just not ask the tough question of what does this mean for the relationship between the Chicago wilderness and indigenous peoples today, right? Um, not merely as a historical thing, but as a thing that continues on today and into the future. That there are still peoples who, yes, did practice fire centuries ago uh, as a as a um, as an ecological governance technique. But there are still people in this region who continue to use fire as ecological governance practice today. Um, tribes in um, Western Michigan, for example. We don't have tribes in Illinois that are doing this in official capacity, but that's not because we don't have indigenous peoples who live here. We have a lot of indigenous peoples who live here, people who stand in relationship to the Chicago wilderness. We don't have um, official uh, federally recognized tribes, um, but of course that's different from the question of who actually does continue to live here and live in relation to the land here. Right. Yeah, there's... Um... There's a, an entire chapter in the book devoted to that Chicago wilderness area, which I thought was very fascinating. And I always appreciate uh, in-depth kind of, you know, practical getting into it examples in philosophy. I mean, you know, I, I have an analytic background. I like thought experiments as much as anybody. But, <laughs> ha but having a chapter that really looks at a lived situation, particularly the one that you are enmeshed in now, mm -hmm. I think is... Uh, really valuable. I mean, to have some kind of engaged, some engaged component to the philosophy. In some ways, I think that's like the great privilege for those of us who have, have come up in philosophy in the early 20th, 21st century is um, we don't have to choose between like thinking analytically and thinking practically uh, that we can care about pragmatic insights. And we also can care about like careful argumentation. Um, I, I know that I'm really grateful um, when I was in graduate school that I had that opportunity that my teachers encouraged me to think about the practical significance of my work and to make sure that it was like in conversation with real things. Um, and, and But I could also um, force myself to ask uh, critically analytic questions as well. I was listening, Ian, to your uh, podcast with Lisa Heltke. She gave a shout out to her dissertation advisor, advisor, Arthur Fine, 
And just mm-hmm. so happens he was also my dissertation advisor. And, oh, really? Uh, that's one of the lessons I learned from him to be a good philosopher of science, maybe to be just a good philosopher, um, to make sure that you're actually being responsive to the things that you that you're interested in, to the uh, people that you're studying, to the um, the cases that you're interested in, and whether that means like really understanding gravitational waves, or whether that means like really trying to understand um, ecological restoration um, in a particular place. Um, I, I, I try to, um, I try to take that to heart. Yeah. So as you heard, then, if you listen to Lisa Heldke's uh, interview, I try to end each of these conversations asking each guest to bring some kind of food or uh, a recipe to share. You know, like when I teach philosophy of food at my university at UTRGV, uh, the students actually bring food to class, uh, you know, and we share food and talk about what it means to them um, and use that as a way to get to know one another better. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you, how are you doing that um, with your virtual classes? Yeah, I'm teaching that this semester, actually. And sort of like, uh, you know, the imposition I made on you to think of to think of something to talk about here. I'm having the students uh, record videos about the oh, food that they're doing. It's been fantastic. First of all, I'm constantly shocked at the level of video <laughs> editing skills that just average people have nowadays, uh, which, you know, when I was an undergrad, if someone had asked me to make a 15 minute movie, <laughs> you know, and they weren't providing any equipment, I, yeah. I don't know what I would have done. But everybody's are very professional looking. Oh, and it, yeah, and it gives them a chance to you know show them actually preparing the food um, or, you know, they're working with their mom maybe to prepare something and, you know, talking to her a little bit, oh, that's uh, you know, to. Yeah, to take them on a tour. Like one student took, on, took us on a tour of her garden as she was picking things. So uh, it, lets them, it lets them really uh, talk about other aspects of the food or encourages them to in a way that's fantastic. Once we get back to uh, in-person education, assuming that we ever see other people again, uh, <laughs> so assuming that that ever happens, then I'm going to keep that aspect. I'm going to have people produce these videos and oh, bring some food to share so that we can watch it while yeah. we're snacking is kind of the idea because it's been just... So successful. I mean, students who otherwise, you know, if you're asking them questions about readings or you're asking them sort of theoretical philosophical questions, they'll answer them. They're very bright. I have great students here. Uh, But when you talk about food, there's something that clicks for people Mm. that Mm -hmm. the automatic ideas of associating it with their own experience, with things that are important to them, with their sort of lived realities, with their emotional lives, with their family, with their past automatically happens just a natural kind of process in a way that if yeah and you know they've been trained that if you ask academic sort of schooly kind of questions certainly philosophical questions that none of that experience is valuable or worthwhile and they shouldn't Mm -hmm. bring it up um but you know they haven't that that hasn't been taught to them yet about food and so it's a natural connection and then that can build the kind of conversations we'd like to have about other topics i mean it's my favorite class to teach by far if any if you ever have a chance to design a class try to teach a philosophy of food class, it, they go so well. <laughs> that's, that's great, because, of course, um, it can, it, students can really think about the, the ethical dimensions, but also the, the knowledge that's involved, the aesthetics that are involved, the political right. stuff, and not just in an abstract way, but in a way that's connected to these, to these um, specific dishes that they're sharing with the rest of the class. Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, the thing that I say at the the thing that I said in the first episode of this podcast is that when you talk about food, you talk about everything. And uh, it's certainly true as a framework because 
it has all those implications like you're talking about, but it's still a shared experience that we can reference, right? Everybody has to eat, even if they eat wildly different dishes, we're all still vulnerable, right? We all have to feed ourselves every day. We have to have some kind of uh, dependence on a wide ranging environmental network like you're talking about in your book. Um, you know, we are always in relationships. We couldn't choose to not be in relationships with non-human others on a daily basis and that it can ground us in thinking about that. Yes. So what food uh, do you have for us today? Yes. Well, I thought about this a bit and um, the experience for me and my little family over the last several months has definitely been uh, one in which um, our relationship to food has changed. Um, we are, we are cooking at home, you know, nearly constantly. Um, and we've been a lot, um, we've had a lot closer of a relationship to our little family garden that we've been growing for the last few years. Um, also this year for the first time, we signed up for a community supported agriculture with a, a farm outside of, um, outside of Chicago called angelic organics, you know, um, community supported agriculture is really exciting. In the past, uh, I have always gone to farmers markets, uh, and sort of poked around in uh, less of a committed style, right. Um, but what's so great about a CSA is that the um, farmer or farmers in question um, can depend on you, right, you've made a commitment right. for months and months. Um, and now that um, now that our life uh, now that our lives are organized so differently, uh, going and picking up a box of vegetables uh, at a particular time once a week is not the logistical challenge that it would have been previously. <laughs> and indeed, an adventure to get out of the house. I bet. Yeah, exactly. I can bike over and throw all the veggies in my backpack and and bike home. Uh, so that being said, uh, I'm going to speak up for. Uh, going to speak up for kale, um, both the kale that we grow in our garden and the kale that we sometimes get from our CSA. There are other things in our garden that are satisfying when they pay off, but gosh, they just don't pay off uh, that much. You know, maybe we'll get, uh, we'll get two uh, cucumbers over the course of the whole year, year. Uh, but kale seems to be there for us like week in and week out. Uh, our daughter likes to. Um, Harvest the kale. Sometimes she'll just take a leaf. Honestly, she'll just take a leaf right off the um, right off the plant and just eat it right then. Um, but um, we just also like to make a good old kale salad. The whole process I find I'm honestly very therapeutic. You tear up the leaves, you wash them, uh, you dry them, and you got this great bowl of like green liquid uh, that's been left behind. You get to massage oil into the leaves and the leaves break down. Um, and then you have a nice little base for a salad there for yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, this might be bias on my part. I might just be lucky with both of my kids. But I feel like people who say that their children don't like vegetables, I really suggest you have a garden. I mean, that is as the way to address that, because fresh vegetables... I mean, all the sugars that haven't been converted to starches yet, right when you pick mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. kids are much more keen on that. And just, and the, plus just, they love doing it. It's a magical thing to see a plant grow and uh, to be able to then do that and then eat something to then have that connect to food that they've seen previously at the grocery store is, I don't know, I think it's a great experience for them. It's, it's exciting for them to see the, 
tomatoes get bigger and bigger to see them turn from green to red, right? To go back and see, right. are there any new tomatoes that we can, that we can pick today? And, you know, in terms of relationships to non-humans, at least my kids are, you know, good models for me for thinking about invasive, uh, you know, pests that are coming in and mm. attacking mm -hmm. our garden because they want to eat tomatoes if we're growing tomatoes. Like, you know, in Michigan, we had a very large garden and they would get excited about squash and greens and things that we were growing. But when a woodchuck came and started eating those, they also thought the woodchuck was really cool. <laughs> you know, they were really happy to see that too. It's, it was definitely a mama. You could tell that it was pregnant, you know, and then there, later there were babies and that was really exciting. It lived did, in the woods. Did they actually get to house. see the woodchuck like in action? In, yeah, they, yeah, they would. Great. She was bold enough uh, <laughs> because we were, you know, our, uh, where we were living at the time in Michigan was right up against this little preserved mm. uh, forest area that Michigan State University uh, keeps for its forestry program. And so, um, you know, she had she'd never had a bad experience in her life she was very bold coming out and stealing our garden and they thought that was fantastic too so we planted a garden nearer to the woods for her mm -hmm. so that we could observe her and then hopefully she would leave our food alone and so that sort of uh you know disappointment that something that you are looking at growing isn't for you because something else has eaten it is real they were sad if you know something they liked was gone but also they weren't they didn't see themselves as owning the garden that there yeah. that it was a pr profound violation for anything else to try to get food out of it yeah absolutely i was also thinking your point about adventurous kid eaters and eating their veggies it's also great if you can have a few different kinds of veggies in your garden uh right because then uh if you're if you're if your daughter doesn't like broccoli that's okay because uh but because then it doesn't have to be about vegetables maybe it's just about broccoli and she can enjoy uh, lima beans or kale or, right. or um, other veggies. Um, and uh, yeah, that kind, of, um, that kind of variety, I think, can be good for all of us. Yeah, and learn to have relationships that at least sort of uh, fully citified, you know, fully uh, professionalized kind of people often lose. You know, even if you don't like the taste of broccoli, you might think it looks beautiful, right? You might think zucchini blossoms are beautiful, mm -hmm. even if you don't like to eat them. There's other ways to sort of interact with it as a whole plant rather than as a thing in the grocery store. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for participating in this. I think this has uh, been a great conversation. When is your book actually available for people to pick up? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Ian. Uh, the book comes out on December 15th. Uh, it's called Reparative Environmental Justice in a world of wounds uh, and it's coming out with uh, Lexington books. Um, yeah. In mid December. Perfect. I suggest everybody check it out. I've really enjoyed looking at it uh, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks Ian. It was great to be here. That was my conversation with Ben Almasi. Links are in the show notes, including a link to his book, Reparative Environmental Justice in a World of Wounds, which again comes out on December 15th, but is available for pre-order now. If you'd like to pick it up, maybe as a Christmas present, you know, my family gives books to each other on Christmas Eve, and this would be a great one to start that tradition around if you know someone who thinks about these issues. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed or have some feedback about this or any other episode, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time... 
Thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. Thank you.